a quick note, we've just started a Substack, journalismsalute.substack.com. We'll have regular episode updates there. Plus, we'd like to hear from you. What do you want to hear from us in 2024? Let us know, journalismsalute at gmail.com. Now, on with the episode. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Masara Makati. Masara covers immigrants and communities of color for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She's been with them for about a year and a half. Prior to that, she covered a similar beat for the Albany Times Union in New York and also worked for the Houston Chronicle. She's of Lebanese descent. She just won an award from the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association and is a graduate of The Ohio State University. Masara, hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is your journalism origin story? I actually was pretty young when I decided I wanted to be a journalist. So I'm from Lebanon, but I grew up in Ohio. I, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm Lebanese. My parents are immigrants from Lebanon and growing up as an Arab American Muslim in the post 9-11 world, especially in a town where we were one of maybe two Arab families, was really a formative experience. And I dealt with a lot of misunderstandings, misconceptions of my community, my culture, my heritage, my faith from my peers and community members. And I saw a lot of that coming from the mainstream media, narratives from the mainstream media that lacked context, that lacked nuance, that lacked humanization. And I was in middle school and I thought that I was going to change the world with my journalism. (laughs) I just thought that was the way that I could make a dent. You know, obviously, since I have become a lot more realistic about my capabilities as a journalist in the world, but that was really what formed me and that passion to that passion to clarify and humanize my community extended to all communities of color and it's really what I've dedicated my entire life to and my entire career to from high school to college to my journalism career every single place that I've worked every single beat that I have had I have made sure to prioritize stories that tell both the stories about the wonderful things about our experiences and our identities and our cultures as people of color, and also the oppressions and the discriminations that we face and the root causes of those issues. Is there anything in your background, whether it be family, heritage, that lends itself to telling stories? I was thinking a lot about this. I mean, there aren't any other journalists in my family, but... I think that if you talk to any Arab and really probably any brown person in general, (laughs) um, storytelling is such a huge part of our cultures, right? There's this, I mean, I just can't think of family members that I have that aren't amazing storytellers when you're sitting around the dinner table and they're so captivating and they're so engaging and they're so energetic and they're hilarious. It was just always hearing stories from families from family members growing up. And I think that is something that probably took a hold on me. You know, I also, my, my mom was a huge fan of, of writing and literature. And I think that really influenced me a lot as well at a young age. I really loved reading and 
wanted to become a writer in some way and journalism was just the way that I felt like I could become a writer and have more of an impact. But I do think that storytelling, oral storytelling is definitely a huge part of our cultures. You mentioned uh, telling stories that celebrate your culture and celebrate the communities. I should point out that Masara in Arabic means delight, joy, or cause for celebration. Correct. I learned that from my my grandmother actually, but yeah, it's 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 funny. It's an old name in Arabic, but it's definitely has a beautiful meaning. And it fits. What were the turning point moments in your time with both the Chronicle and the Albany Times Union that led you to where you are now? You know, I don't think that I had any moments that were really life-changing that, you know, this was the moment that I, you know, feel like opened all these doors for me. I don't think that that happened. I think that I I see it more as building blocks, right? I think that every single story that I wrote was really a building block to the next thing, you know, to the next story. And I think it just really, I was really able to carve out a niche for myself in that way. So when I was in Houston, I was actually a general assignment reporter, but I was really passionate about covering, you know, the issues related to communities of color. And so I made sure to really make that a focus of mine outside of my general assignments. And I ended up focusing more on covering Arab and Muslim communities because I saw an opportunity to really delve into a community that hadn't been covered at that paper before. And there were some really, really fun stories that I wrote during my time there. I think probably my favorite one was when I profiled a Muslim American family. I followed them for about eight months and wrote about how they grappled with their Muslim American identity over three generations. And that was a story that was honestly kind of personal to me too. I think that I love these stories that kind of question our cultures and and our identities and kind of how we find our place in the world and in the societies that we live in while still holding on to where we come from. And then in Albany, you know, Continuing that, I was the lead reporter after the murder of George Floyd, covering the social justice movements that were happening in the capital region. I was the first reporter at that paper ever dedicated to covering communities of color and immigration. So it was a really, really wonderful and, and defining experience. I would say probably the biggest project that I, you know, came out of there was definitely our our project on redlining in Albany, which was unprecedented and, and it was a beast, but it was really incredible to do all this research and find the history behind why Albany looks the way it does today. Now that was listed as a five-month investigative project. You mentioned that your story at the Chronicle was an eight-month story. You got any? Do you have any tips on long projects and getting them done? Oh man, long projects are really hard, right? Like I think that it's one of those things where you start off and you feel a little bit paralyzed because you have this just this looming mountain in front of you, right? And I think it's just about taking one step at a time. I'll say with both of these projects, I didn't know how they were going to look when I started. May or may not have been a good thing. (laughs) Some people (laughs) say that you should have a better idea of what you want your project to be like before you start it. I had this idea. I I had this question. I had this prompt. But I kind of let the story take me on on a journey, right? And I think I did that really with both pieces. But... I think the tips that I would say is to just try to stay as organized as possible, you know, interview as many people as possible, categorize them according to experts versus community members versus, you know, whatever it may be, 
when in doubt, go in chronological order, because I think that, you know, if anything, that process of putting it in chronological order can then help you kind of group things together by theme and figure out if you want to rearrange the story in a in a different, potentially more compelling way and ask your editors lots of questions. <laughs> As someone who's done two year-long projects, uh, I can vouch for all of the things that, that you said. So in February 2022, the publisher of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Elizabeth Hughes, wrote an apology to the Black residents and communities of Philadelphia, to Black journalists who worked at the Inquirer, and to other communities and people who were also neglected or harmed by the Inquirer's coverage or lack of coverage of some stories. This came after journalist Wesley Lowry recounted the paper's troublesome history, including the publishing of the tone-deaf headline, Buildings Matter Too, during the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. With that in mind, you work for the Communities and Engagement Desk, uh, which centers deep listening to community members and leaders across the city. From a practical perspective, what do you do to fulfill that? What I love about this job, specifically, is that I'm not only writing stories about and for communities of color, I'm also building relationships with them. And I think that's what's really important. And that's what often frustrates me sometimes with the journalism industry. There's There does need to be this distance between journalists and their sources, but I think that there needs to be also an empathy and a compassion. And I think it's hard to have that as a journalist if you're not building relationships. And I also think that so often in our industry, we walk into stories with a sense of entitlement, you know, a sense of like, well, I'm doing you a favor, right? Like you should be telling me your story. This is a great opportunity for you. And, and that's really not the case. You know, people don't owe us their stories. And that's what I keep at the top of my mind all the time when I'm doing this job and especially when I'm building my relationships with community members, I think a lot of it is holding myself accountable and holding my institution accountable and my industry accountable, you know, being honest with sources that, you know, things have been really messed up for a really long time and they still are. And that we continue to cause harm to their communities every single day. We're trying to change that. I'm one person there's only so much that I can do, but I promise to do everything that I have in my ability to change that. And so, you know, I guess from a practical perspective, that means community engagement is is just building those relationships. So it's having lunches and coffees and phone calls and just to talk to people, not to get story ideas, right? Just to talk to people, just to get to know them offering myself as much as they offer themselves so they can get to know me as well. And so they can decide whether or not I'm someone that they can trust with their stories. Uh, following up with people after stories do get published to get their feedback, to get their input, to see if there's anything that I should have or could have done differently that could have been better. I think it's just really about taking down that wall that we so often have with our sources because when you have that wall up, it's really easy to move through your work as a journalist without worrying about the consequences your work has and hiding behind excuses of, well, you know, it's, it's journalism and they should have known better and they should have done this, right? That's not what our jobs are with these communities. That's what our job is with elected officials, with powerful people, with, you know, billionaire companies. That's our job with those people. But when we're talking about communities that have been marginalized and that have been harmed by our industry for so long, we have to approach that so much more differently. 
Um, so you come to Philadelphia. What were the first things that you did to prepare for the job? So I've actually traveled a lot throughout my life. I grew up in Ohio, but I've lived in a lot of other cities. And like you mentioned, I was in Albany before. I was in Houston before. So for me as a local reporter, especially focusing on covering communities, color, marginalized communities, the first things that I always do is set up a lot of meetings. So start by doing my research and seeing like, what are some of the big organizations? I, I actually really like to start with a lot of grassroots activists. I think that that's a really great way to get a pulse on the community, um, neighborhood associations, neighborhood groups, you know, any, any prominent group that I can find in the area that's made up of community members or that's dedicated to a certain cause, I reach out to them. I start setting up meetings with them and each meeting I ask for five more names. Who else do you think I should talk to? And then I kind of, you know, domino effect from there. I think what's also really helpful is that, you know, once you start working on stories and you interview someone for the story, you ask them, well, who else do you think I should talk to for the story? And, and then just kind of building that list of people who you want to maintain relationships with throughout your time as a journalist at that paper but it's, it really is that simple. You know, it really is just having conversations and asking for more names and continuing to build those relationships. And over a number of years, as you said, it, it snowballs and you're pretty well set up for your beat, certainly. Yeah. So let's go through a few stories that you've worked on. And I want to start with one that came out three weeks into starting at the Inquirer for you. You, were, you wrote about Natalie Abu Hawa, who was fired from her job as an athletic trainer at a local school. She was fired for social media posts that were critical of Israel. One year later, no one's hiring her. And I see she's now an organizer of pro-Palestinian protests in the city. This piece won an award from the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association for best coverage of the heritage communities in North America. What did you do to report on it? I first heard about Natalie's story when I was doing those engagement calls when I first started the Inquirer and someone in the Muslim community that I was talking to mentioned what happened to her. And, you know, I was all, I was just immediately intrigued. I think this is a story that a lot of people have heard, but I don't think it's a story that's really been covered that much. I saw that the Inquirer had written about her EEOC suit a few months prior, but I thought that there was a bigger story to be written here, right? This is what I this is what I mean when I talk about we need to have context and we need to have nuance and we need to have humanization when it comes to covering communities of color. There was a deeper story here to be told and I was really interested in what that deeper story was, especially if she had been fired a year prior and she still hadn't received a job, she still hadn't been able to secure a job in her chosen industry. And so the reporting process wasn't too complicated, honestly. You know, it was just interviewing Natalie and then finding some expert voices to include in the story who could provide that that academic context and that legal context to what happened to her, but also how what happened to her is really resemblant of these larger trends and these larger themes across the country, especially when it comes to people who advocate for Palestinian human rights. And I think that maybe was the more challenging part was including all that context and figuring out how to how to write about a topic that's so sensitive and that's so incendiary for so many people, but how to write about it in a way that's fair and that's balanced and that speaks to these larger themes. And that was really my my goal with the whole thing. And the story ended up blowing up. 
And obviously in some ways bad, right? There were people who were really upset with the story, but the vast majority of the responses that I got were actually very, very positive because I think that people were so relieved to see such an honest, authentic representation of an experience that so many people across the country have in a mainstream news outlet. I mean, I was approached by people after the story who were saying like, I can't believe that you got something like this published at the Inquirer. Like, oh, this means that the Inquirer must really be serious when they're saying that they want to change things. I think it just gave representation to a narrative and an experience that's so often silenced and sidelined and misconstrued. And that was really powerful. And it's something that, as you said, you did not long after you started. So it was almost like a statement of seriousness with which you were going to be bringing to the beat and that you now could show this to people that you were talking to in the future. Hey, I did this. Is there any follow-up to the story? No, not now. As far as I know, Natalie still hasn't been able to secure a job in her chosen industry, which is really unfortunate, you know, despite her many qualifications and accolades. But, you know, as you said, she has moved on to, you know, she's one of the lead organizers in pro-Palestine protests across the city right now. So I don't think there's a follow-up to that right now. But what I will say is that obviously in light of, you know, the Israel-Gaza war, there have been a number of people across the city who have been dealing with similar things that Natalie dealt with a few years ago on a much wider scale and more frequently. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there would be a follow-up story on the topic in general sometime in the near future. Congratulations on winning the award for it. Another piece, a multimedia piece, 150 years of development, displacement, and resilience in Philadelphia's Chinatown. This is pretty comprehensive. It's It kind of reminded me of the Albany piece a little bit. How did it go from idea to finished product? This was a really, really incredible project. And I have to give uh, my journalism salute to Jason Lowe because he was my collaborator, my co-creator on this project, and he did such an incredible job with it. But essentially, you know, I have been covering the issue of the proposed Sixers Arena for over a year now. It was actually my first signed story when I started at the Inquirer, and it's just kind of become my my little subbeat ever since. And so for those who are listening who aren't familiar, the Sixers have proposed a new arena uh, to be located in downtown Philadelphia. The arena would border Chinatown, and Chinatown has been vehemently opposed to it because they're claiming that the arena would cause uh, gentrification and displacement in their neighborhood, in their historic neighborhood. So this story actually was inspired by a news release that came out from the National Trust for Historic Preservation that listed Philadelphia's Chinatown as one of the top 11 endangered historic sites in the country in 2023. And that was something that I thought it was really striking. We wrote, you know, a simple story just saying that this press release had been issued and this is why they listed Philadelphia Chinatown. But I thought there was more to the story than met the eye because I had been covering this topic for so many months. And in every single story, we would say, you know, Chinatown says that they're concerned about gentrification and displacement if this arena were to be built. But 
we never really dug deeper into that, right? Like we never really dug deeper into how real that fear is and that it's not an irrational fear, right? That this is actually based on history. This is based on reality. This is based on facts. And so I wanted to examine like how very real that threat of endangerment was and how can we demonstrate that in a way that drives the point home. And so it started off, you know, with a brainstorming session, a lot of different ideas were thrown out there, but we knew that we wanted to partner with interactives. Jason is on the interactive team for the story so that we could really make it a, a visually powerful piece for readers and something that's easy for readers to digest. Because when you have those interactives and the visuals, it's just, I don't know, maybe I'm a visual learner, but I think it's easier to digest stories that way. And so we thought the best way to do that would be like a really, a really deep, deep dive into Chinatown's history. And, and, but again, there, it's one thing to go into Chinatown's history with words saying like this project was proposed and these many people were displaced, et cetera, et cetera. But when you have that map, right. And you see all of the buildings and the shaded out areas and the red areas and the ways in which Chinatown is just enclosed in more and more and more with each project that just makes it really, really hard to deny. So Jason and I did a lot of research. Jason did more of the research than I did. And we just came up with this project. And this also took multiple months uh, from, you know, idea to fruition, but it was, it was well worth it. And a lot of people in the community said that they learned things that they didn't know before and that they just feel like this spoke to their history in a way that they've never seen before too. Refreshing history seems to be an important theme for you, both with the Albany piece and with this one. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think that I think that like all of the questions in life, anything that we face today, the answer always lies in history, right? I think it's really important to look at that. And you spoke about visuals. There's also a really good visual at the top of the Albany story, which will be linked in the show notes. That it's like an animation of the areas that you're referring to. It was uh, very powerful. That said a lot more than what just words would. Uh, I want to talk about things that are more upbeat. Let's touch on one. I can I could tell, especially given that you were on NBC News talking about this, that you particularly enjoyed covering soccer, uniting the Arab community in Philadelphia. It was an A1 story. Can you explain how you and your video team worked on this one? Oh, yeah, that was actually one of my favorite stories. Well, it was one of my favorite topics, I should say, partially because the World Cup was so exciting last year. <laughs> it was just really, really incredible to see how well Arab teams were performing, not just Arab teams. I mean, a lot of teams were performing in the World Cup last year, and it just felt like it was really flipping power dynamics on on its head. And I think a lot of people of color across the country were really excited with how teams were performing, but the Arab world especially was just, it was just on fire. And, you know, there were multiple, you know, Saudi's team did an incredible job. Tunisia's team did an incredible job. Morocco's team obviously made it the furthest. And I just have never in my lifetime felt that level of solidarity and pride and excitement over something positive in the Arab world and its diaspora. And it just felt like such a special moment. And there was this real momentum. And so 
I was just thinking about how I felt and obviously what I was seeing online, social media and what I was hearing people talking about. And I, and I knew that there was a story there, you know, I knew there was a story there about how Morocco's run was really fueling this pan-Arab pride and solidarity. And so, you know, this is something that could have easily been a national story or an international story, but I just wanted to write it. So I figured out a way to localize it. I uh, reached out to numerous people in the Arab communities, especially Moroccan communities in the Philly area. And I found out that they were having a watch party, which was really, you know, which was a really great opportunity for us to send a videographer out to. And it was just an undeniably dynamic energy. It was a lot of fun to write that story. And what is the actual process of writing like for you? I think it depends on the story. And I think my process is also changing. So I used to be like, I had to write everything in chronological order. But then recently I've started, I've, you know, through hearing other people's writing advice, I think, I think there was one advice that I heard one time that was like, give yourself permission to be imperfect. And I was like, you know what, that's not a bad idea. So why don't I just start like writing whatever comes to my mind? Like, maybe I feel like I can get to the nut graph first, or there are other parts of the of the story that I feel, you know, like I can write right now, and, and I just need to circle back to the lead, or, you know, I'm just going to like put some bullet points and ideas down, and then, and then kind of figure out a way to string it together into full sentences, just getting something out on the page, I think can help you move a little bit faster. And I do think that with my leads, especially, I try, I don't always succeed, but I really try to have leads that are captivating and that and that catch the reader. And I try to have leads that are different. You know, I think a lot of people might start off a story that's like, when so-and-so decided to so-and-so, right? There's all like, when this person had this experience, everything changed, or right? Like, what's a way that we can... St- What's a way that you can start your story that kind of hits the reader in a different way? Maybe with like a vivid memory or maybe with something that they would hear if they were on the scene or something that they would smell when they're on the scene. Maybe something that would make them laugh. You know, I just wrote a story about like the tradition of Pirinin for Puerto Ricans for Christmas. And I started the story with, you know, a joke that that someone that I interviewed for the story told me that like do you season your perineal until your ancestors scream at you to stop so I think it's I think it's just trying to find something that will catch the reader a little bit more that they don't see every day sometimes one of my favorite exercises to do actually is like to open up a bunch of different articles and just read the lead of each story and kind of do a little bit research that a little bit of research that way and get inspiration that way and then the only other thing I'd say, especially like when it comes to bigger pieces, longer pieces and more in-depth reporting, kind of, I start with pen and paper. I always like to start with pen and paper, writing down like the big takeaways after going through my interviews, um, the big themes from the stories and kind of trying to group things together and figure out the best order to put it in and then going from there. All right. As, as an old schooler, I like that one a <laughs> lot. And I like read the leads a lot too. I find myself doing similar in my field. Now, word choice is important on every beat, but particularly a beat covering communities of color due to cultural and historical sensitivities of different groups. Do you have an example of decisions that you've made regarding word choice within a story and how you came to that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think that happens a lot when you're someone covering the topics that I cover. 
you know, the first example that comes to mind, and I think a lot of people were having these difficult conversations after the murder, murder of George Floyd and the protests that we were all covering that were happening across the country. A lot of people were having conversations about whether or not to categorize some of these protests as riots. I was covering a protest, the, you know, the aftermath of a protest. I had like a Sunday shift and I was covering the aftermath of the protest that morning. And I had to have a, a difficult conversation with my editor telling her that I did not feel comfortable using the word riot in my stories. You know, I told her to some people they're riots, to other people they're uprisings. And I just don't think that, I don't think that, I I just don't feel comfortable using that term because of the racial connotation with it. And, you know, we always, we always use the word riot when it comes to something that black and brown people are protesting. We never use the word riot when it comes to really anything else in any other demographic, right? So after some conversation, we decided that we would, you know, just call it a protest and describe what happened at the protest. And I think at most, maybe the strongest wording that we used in our stories was civil unrest. And people, you know, that was the first day, but then it was decided that week across the newsroom that we wouldn't use the word riot in any of our reporting moving forward. So, wow. you know, I and I, I mean, I think I would say that that also speaks to a bigger issue. Like if there are people who are listening to this who want to cover these topics you know it's it's like a really beautiful fulfilling thing to do to cover it's hard and you have to have these difficult conversations with people day in day out and when you're a journalist of color it's even harder because you have to watch your words so much because your credibility is going to be questioned nth times more than your white colleagues are right but we didn't get in this because it was easy, right? We didn't decide that we wanted to do this because it was easy. It's exactly because it's hard that we need to be doing it. So you, you've talked about a few different things here with the challenges of the job. Have you experienced any issues with either people you've interviewed, events you've covered, or your readership because of your heritage? I haven't had issues when I'm out reporting on the field or when I'm interviewing people in person. But I'd say like feedback to stories, certainly as many of us have gotten a lot of racist emails, a lot of people angry about the topics I've written about. Like I remember even one time last year, I wrote a story about safe places for lesbians to watch the Super Bowl because the last lesbian bar had closed in Philly. And people were livid about that story. I mean, I just could not believe how many nasty emails I got in response to that. Although my pro tip to people is to delete the emails before you read them, the angry emails, because it's just not worth it. But I'll say that, you know, in addition to that, you know, like the Natalie Abulhawa story, and really every story that I've written that has had to do with the Palestinian community, but also stories that I've written about race in general. I think this goes to my point that I've said multiple times throughout this conversation, journalists of color are always questioned more. Their credibility is questioned more their professionalism is questioned more. And that's certainly something that I have personally experienced and that I've seen a lot of my colleagues experience. And it's really unfortunate because I think that we, have reached more of a point in the industry where, for example, we see 
when it comes to covering police brutality and Black Lives Matter that Black journalists' identities are an asset to their reporting. And I'm really glad that we've reached that point more. We're still not fully there, but we've reached that point more in the industry. And I think that we just need to keep working to translate that to other communities and other journalists of color as well. Are there things that you do to help manage your mental health? Therapy. Definitely therapy. I think I have been also, when things get more difficult with work, trying to be intentional about like separating work from my personal life. I think that's the other hard thing. Like when you make your passion and something that's such a huge part of your core and your identity, your nine to five, it's, it is hard to separate yourself from that after the workday is over, but really trying to like, really, you know, like, yes, this is something that you're passionate about, but you need to preserve your, your mental health. So it's not something that you can spend energy on when you're off the clock or at least you should try to to limit the energy that you spend on it when you're off the clock, distract yourself, find other hobbies, find other passions, or, you know, find other outlets for this specific passion. Can you take on other types of writing, for example, that, you know, speak more to this issue that you're passionate about? And I think that the only other thing that I would say for preserving your mental health especially when it comes to this is, well, for me is, is nature, honestly, like being out in nature is, is really a way that I find myself able to, to truly unplug and, and recenter myself and just focus on this like bigger mission that I feel like I have. So hiking, being around water or whatever it may be, those are really good moments of solitude and reflection. Um, about a year ago, you had a thread about the value of Twitter for journalists of color. Can you speak to what you wrote? I wrote that during one of the many times that we thought that Twitter was going to die. <laughs> and I I personally have always disliked using Twitter. I'm just not a big social media person in general. Sorry to, you know, employers, future employers. I just don't like it. I'll do it. I don't like it. But even though I don't, I never really liked Twitter, I couldn't help but feel a little bit sad about the fact that it was dying because I mean, Twitter for me was where I connected with so many other journalists of color, especially Arab journalists. And that was really important because when I felt alone and isolated in my newsrooms as one of the only Arab journalists or one of the only journalists of color in general, I felt like I had this community in the larger industry that made me feel less alone. And so I think it was having that support system, you know, knowing that there are other people out there who are like you, who are working toward the same thing, feeling less alone than that. But I also think that what was really important is that Twitter really decentralized power in the journalism industry. You saw a lot of journalists of color, like you mentioned Wesley Lowry earlier, build personal brands and and followers that like really protected them while they were challenging their newsrooms to question the status quo. I think that's something that we need that we need more of, especially because like I mentioned before, journalists of color are so much more vulnerable in this industry to being attacked for their credibility, for their skills, for their ability to carry out the job. We've seen it happen to black journalists when it comes to covering Black Lives Matter and police brutality. We've seen it happen to Latino journalists when it comes to covering immigration issues. We are seeing it happening to Arab and Muslim journalists right now when it comes to covering Palestine, Israel. So I think that 
to have that space that validates you and that empowers you outside of your workplace. And that kind of forces your workplace to see your value and your worth in the eyes of your followers and in your readers is a really, really important way to decentralize power in our industry. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. You saluted a few people along the way throughout the interview here, but we can restate those. You can do it again. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? You can do more than one. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, I already mentioned this, but uh, Jason Lowe was an incredible collaborator with the Chinatown Project. Eduardo Medina was my collaborator on the Albany Segregation Project, um, and he's one of the best journalists I've, I know and that I've ever worked with. He's incredible. I also think it's really important right now, like during a time where we're seeing an unprecedented number of journalists being killed while covering conflict to salute the journalists that are covering the Israel-Gaza war and especially the Palestinian journalists, um, you know, those who, who live and work in Gaza who continue to cover the tragedies day in and day out, even as they're losing family members, they're losing their homes and they're losing loved ones. And the last person I'd, I'd really like to shout out is Mona Shalabi who has been putting out incredible graphics um, and visual and uh, data illustrations in regards to a lot of things happening in the world, but especially in regards to the war. She is a data editor at The Guardian, but she also freelances a lot of, she won a Pulitzer for a project on Jeff Bezos with the New York Times. So she's she's worked for a lot of places. Yeah. She used to be at 538. Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's how I know the name. Cool. Masara Makati, thank you for taking the time to join us. This was a really interesting conversation, and we will be following your work in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.